when you know people from a super young age, I think it's sometimes it's kind of hard to to pull these life stories out of them. And it's also easy to forget that sometimes the people that you know, those that are around you immediately, those that that are intertwined in your life, uh, they could be world class at what they do. And you don't you don't always think about it. You don't you don't always acknowledge it. Um, you might you might understand it. You might know it a bit, but you don't realize how immense the talent really is because it's become this thing that's just commonplace you you don't think about a person's talent you think about them as a person in the way that you you might have grown up together and this was kind of the case with Steve Onatera the samurai guitarist himself so Steve Onatera is a is a guy that I've known since he was like six years old super young and we were always friends. He was younger than I was. He was six years younger than I was. And for me personally, our, our friendship kind of morphed and developed as we got older, as we got more mature. And Steve really pursued this music thing really hard. And it was cool because we had played some shows together. But Steve Steve went off and he, he did a degree in music. And it, it was one of those things where... He worked really, really hard at it, but he always tried to figure out how to execute on it. And slowly over time, he he started doing these videos. He'd put up these random videos, just little things on his Instagram feed of him knocking covers out of the park or doing these things that were kind of kitschy. And people were giving him pretty good feedback. And eventually that, that evolved into this brand, this brand that's recognized in the guitar community, it's recognized worldwide. And Steve is now known as the Samurai Guitarist. Steve is a, a full-time YouTuber, and the conversation we had was actually pretty interesting because we tried to take things back to these these early days where we first knew each other and, and talked a little bit about his background and his heritage as a Japanese-born Canadian. Um, I guess a Canadian born with Japanese heritage. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. But um, the conversation actually was pretty targeted at YouTube. And, and we talked more about his journey now, which I've been pretty intimate with. But um, he was he, he was so upfront and honest about how things have evolved and where he wants to take it. And he, he was uh, so self-aware with where things might end up. Like if they don't work out, as a, a full-time YouTuber down the road, what are some other avenues he can pursue in music? So Steve is a guy who has an immense talent when it comes to music. And uh, he really is a world-class, not just a world-class guitar player, but a world-class musician. And I think it's easy to forget that he is without a doubt, one of the best guitar players I've ever seen from a, a technical standpoint to a creative standpoint and just a full-on production and execution standpoint. So uh, Steve and I had a wonderful conversation, wove in and out of his background and and really dove into YouTube and how he made it on YouTube and where he thinks it's going to go. So if you haven't subscribed to him, he's been a huge supporter of character 
the podcast. Uh, he's provide lo- provided lots of production insight and feedback and uh, even dropped some of his tunes on here. So if you haven't subscribed to his channel, go check it out on YouTube. Follow him on the interwebs, any social media platform, but at Samurai Guitarist. Go check him out, subscribe, show him some love, and uh, get ready for this conversation. I'm Ben Grenell, and this is Character. Making it on YouTube with Samurai Guitars. irony is that your dad is such a progressive dude as far as like he's a doctor by day but a tinkerer by night and just like a man of all traits like a man like he's like a a renaissance man and it my impression of him is that he never really pushed you in a direction that was like steve go do this he was just like hey steve i i encourage you to do whatever is going to make you happy which is again correct me if i'm wrong but that's how you got into hockey that's how you got into music that's how you got into everything because it was like your parents were really pushing you to just be you as opposed to uh the societal model of what it means to have uh a japanese heritage japanese canadian heritage right yeah i mean these are are things that i've definitely thought about and i don't know because i mean i would be fourth the fourth generation of japanese canadians in our in our family my dad would be the third generation. And once you start getting further away from that, I think there's certain parts of that culture that, that, that shift a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. So I think, I think my dad, like when I look, when he tells me about the stuff that he was into when he was a kid, things like he worked at a radio station, um, had a real love for, for music. Um, like you said, tinkering with, with things, building things, mechanics and all that sort of stuff. I think that's, I mean, if I had to, to, to guess where that comes from, I'm not, I, I don't know that I really know. I think it's probably my grandparents showed him some sort of, put some sort of work ethic instilled in him. And then being an only child, he had to find some ways of, of keeping himself occupied. And you, you combined uh, excitement and passion for mechanics or whatever with this work ethic that you're, your parents have instilled and then it force pushes you into different directions. And so the thing that I see myself in him is not necessarily the, or I see him in me is not necessarily the specifics, but I see that the, the, the passion for things and the, the, the perfectionism type of thing and the, that excitement for, for things. And he put that into first and foremost being, I guess his profession. And then uh, the other things came more for pleasure, such as fixing pinball machines, such as building guitar amplifiers. Whereas for me, I put that into my profession, but I wanted to make sure that what I did was something that I truly deeply loved. And were your grandparents pretty progressive? You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to look... I think it, it grandparents from an ob- 
objective light like that. Like I think they they always encouraged us to do uh, what we wanted to do, and and they always wanted the best for us. But it's hard to see my my grandparents from an outside perspective. I just see them as my grandparents, and that's the way they they were versus being able to see how they compared to other people of that generation, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I would guess they, I think I would assume they must've been, but they didn't seem in any way different than the, I mean, they were my model of what grandparents should be. And so I don't know what the non-progressive grandparent looks like or the overly progressive grandparent. Yeah, it's funny because it's. I think it's also hard too when not only are you talking about cultural differences, but you're talking about generational differences, right? So it's like we're talking – things have changed so much in the past five years, 10 years, 20 years. Never mind. As soon as you start going back 50 years, the worlds that that we're trying to compare and, and the societal influences on – a person like given the time when they grew up i mean they're they're vastly vastly different right so it's hard to say like like oh that's a that's a good benchmark comparing somebody who's like who has such a uh, a big age gap as far as like you're starting to talk decades not years and you're talking um different cultural norms where they're a few degrees closer to the homeland right yeah i think another thing is just like the socioeconomics of it as well. Like my grandparents, like my, I guess it would be my great grandfather would be uh, my relative who came over to Canada from Japan. And my understanding was he came over with not a lot of money. And my grandparents on my dad's side didn't inherit a lot. They, my grandpa was a fisherman before the war. And then during the war, they got placed in internment camps and then relocated to Winnipeg eventually. And nowhere along the line was this concept of them being wealthy. They were very much um, the lower working class of, of Canada. And then as my dad's growing up, you got to think that for he's motivated to, to, to move up, I guess, move up from the, the lower class to the middle class or the upper class or, or however you want to 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 look at that. And so then you get someone like me who or or for him he was probably motivated by things that he he hoped to have. Maybe it was financial stability that maybe he never saw as a child or or being able to to buy some fancy things or or whatever it happens to be. Whereas someone like me who grew up with two doctors as parents, that thing wasn't a motivator for me. I wasn't motivated by the idea that um I want to be able to make sure that I always have food in my fridge. That was never something I really was forced to to really think about at times because I guess I took it for granted. Fortunately, I'm in, in, I was in that position and 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 was never faced with that that reality. And I think because of that, that the motivations for me, it's like okay, I don't care if I get a job that pays a huge amount of money that's going to provide me with all these things. Cause those are never things that I've been thinking about. Those are things I've taken for granted. Whereas being a kid, it was about, okay, I want to do something that I love doing. I want to just, I want to play for a living. I want to get the same feeling I get when I make Lego at 13 or 12 or whatever. 
the same feeling I get when I'm running around the backyard making up these games and, and just having fun and, and doing arts and crafts and whatever. I want to have that same feeling throughout my entire life because those other motivating factors that I was fortunate enough not to have to deal with weren't there. Yeah, I mean, I think we we grew up in a, an interesting position, right? So, like, we were, both of us were super fortunate Mm-hmm. A to place of privilege put, to be put in a place of privilege, right? Um, for for my family in particular, like we were it, throw the privilege side out of it, right, and just be objective. Like we were very very middle class. Um, then now transplant that seed back into the world we grew up in. I, I was like very very privileged that given the the i guess like the socioeconomic background that i was personally coming from and being put in the situation that we were in where we both were able to go to a private school that had a lot of focus on education um and we were surrounded by immense amounts of wealth right like there was just like some there there was a big divide between people like there were people who have not just millions or tens of millions. There are people who have like hundreds of millions of dollars in family wealth uh, going to the same school as people who are making a combined family income of forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, right? So it's like you're talking about a pretty big, uh, pretty big economic gap. Uh, so what what that kind of did is it almost it exposes you to all this wealth. It makes you it makes you either strive for it because you say, Hey, I, I like want to be in a comfortable position or it makes you do the opposite where it's like, I don't want to be a part of this. Right. I want to just do my own yeah. thing. And I, I, I mean, I, I look at that and I think, I feel like I fell somewhere in the middle. It was like, I want to, I mean, who, who doesn't want to have those things? But for me, I was like, I want to get at least elements of those things on my terms. And I don't want to do that. And I want to have I want to have a ton of fun every step of the way as I hopefully get there. And if I have to sacrifice those material things for the fun that I'm having along the way and the enjoyment and fulfillment I get out of of work, then I'm willing to sacrifice those things. And like I've I've had conversations with fellow musicians and other people, and I'm like, you know what? If I was smart, if I put the same amount of time into something else. If I put the same amount of time that I've put into music, into, I don't know, becoming, going to med school or or pursuing a law degree or, or whatever, what have you, that would have been a much better financial decision. But at the same time, the trade-off is I don't think I would have ever enjoyed life the way that I do now. And I've, having worked at this music thing for, for quite a while now, it's I feel like I've just gotten through the woods within the last probably year and a half where the stresses of, of being a musician and wondering, will I ever get to the point where I don't need to always be stressing about money or is no longer a thing. Yeah. And you're allowed, like you have the autonomy to do what you want now. Um, it's not that it's like, Oh, look at Steve. He's financially set for life by any means you work your ass off day in day out man i know you do it's you don't take any of it for granted you know that you have to keep um 
I hate to use this word because it's cliche, but you keep like innovating. You keep you keep trying to tweak and iterate on the product you're putting out, right? Which is, for anyone who hasn't figured it out by now, you're a YouTuber. That's your sure. game. But YouTube is, is one element of what you do, right? Like we're talking right now, it's 10 something PM central time. And I said, Hey man, like, is that cool to jam? And you said, yeah, I, I just have to be off by midnight. Cause you have a guitar lesson at midnight tonight with somebody in a different time zone. And it's like, you, first of all, you're working your ass off. Second of all, you're figuring out ways of diversifying those revenue streams. So it's not just, you're, you're trying to make all your money through YouTube, like putting all your eggs in one basket because a i'm assuming that would be super hard and b it's what if the platform crashes tomorrow it's like you have to you have to spread it out and and keep figuring out what works and what doesn't and tweak it from there yeah and i mean an either even bigger aspect of it is like youtube won't crash tomorrow youtube will be the biggest video platform for the foreseeable future correct but, but it's just like it, it's it's more just like what if engagement slows down for some reason because the algorithm changes. Well, that's, that's exactly what it is. It's the algorithm and, and this, this thing within YouTube that kind of picks and chooses. It sounds like this mysterious being, but it's almost what it is. It's this thing that kind of picks and chooses what's, what it's going to show and who it's going to show it to. And if your content is, is liked by that algorithm, then it's going to, then you're going to do quite well, but they are always changing that algorithm and I believe it's self-learning, so it's making changes changes on its own so that you never know what tomorrow could bring. And there's been uh, times where certain types of videos on YouTube were, were hugely popular. And then the next day, something just happened and everyone was talking about what's going on here. Why is this all falling apart? And so I think it's important to be able to, if you have a fan base, be able to hang on to it and know how to to, to find different ways of making money through that versus just showing them ads on your YouTube video. Because well, if exactly. YouTube says we're not, we don't think that we can advertise through you anymore, then if all your eggs are in that basket, then you're in a bit of trouble. Yeah. I mean, like people are, not only do you have a, a solid audience that, that continues to grow, like you've, you've gotten, uh, I've heard this with a lot of different YouTubers. It's like to, to build to that first, hundred thousands super hard but from there it starts to go up and up and up because there's more social proof and you're figuring out your content a little bit better maybe getting more consistent or whatever it is but you've grown you've continued to grow your audience at a consistent rate which is really nice you haven't really hit any plateau where you're like oh i sat there for three months right like you're you're going up and up and up and it's good to see but at the same time you don't i wouldn't suggest that you have a subscriber base and that's it i would su suggest that you have an engaged audience because when you do something people react to it right w which is a difference of there are some youtubers out there that have heavy audiences but um they wouldn't care if the videos went away tomorrow right especially yeah, because yeah. they're they're isolating themselves just to that platform whereas you're spread out where like man people meet you at like a youtube conference whatever those vidcon and stuff like that you're, you're like a not to stroke the ego too much but you're like a mini celebrity in that sense in that world of like videos and then target it down even more to the it's niche not so much videos it's it's really the guitar community that, that's and what i'm saying like it's like people know you through the videos but it's yeah. the the music and then even more so the the guitar community 
Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, every time I go to Long McQuaid, usually one or two people will will recognize me, say hi, pull me aside for a selfie or whatever. And then more and more it's happened when I'm just out and about. Yeah, it's a cool feeling, hey? It is cool. And it's it's something that since day one, that's what I wanted. And it, it at first I remember thinking that would be the one thing that's going to make it all all worthwhile. That's all I want is to play my guitar and get my recognition, recognition from it. And as time, and as I've evolved over time, I guess as, just as a person, as a musician, it's mean it doesn't have that same weight. I'm still happy that it happens and it's still super cool, but it doesn't really affect me one way or another when it happens. It's not like I, that happens and I'm riding a high for the rest of the day. Someone comes and says hi and that's great. And I try to chat with them a little bit, learn something about them. But it's not like I'm putting all my, my ego isn't fully uh, set on, on that kind of interaction. No, I mean, what I know of you is I would suggest that exactly 0% of your ego, 0.01 maybe, uh, you're grateful for it and you appreciate meeting the person more than you do just being recognized. Like that's such a, that's not even a part of it. It's more just like, hey man, thanks. I'm glad, like, thanks for checking out my content, right? And it's like, the one thing is that, that separates you as a YouTuber from other YouTubers um, and maybe it's like within the music community is your credibility. Like you're again, dude, I'm not trying to blow smoke or stroke your ego. You're such a legit musician. Like you're such, such a, uh, educated guitar player from a technical standpoint, but then also a creative standpoint. And so people respect it. Cause you're not some, some dude who's just spewing like verbal diarrhea through a vlog. And then you can't back it up with, with like, technical talk right so they're like whoa this guy knows what he's talking about and he's creative and he's engaging and 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 you do all these different topical things where um like your credibility is is at an all-time high for a reason right like people just buy in because they trust you because you are doing legit stuff yeah i appreciate that those are nice words i think like one (laughs) one of the things that i try to make sure i do is is just kind of with some of the video choices remind people that at least I'd like to think like I'd like to think that I can back up what I'm saying. There's a reason why you should listen to the words that come out of my mouth. And I think one of the the ways that I try to do that is every now and then I know that these videos are not going to be overly successful, but I'll try to make a video like one of the last ones I put out where I'm just like playing a song and there's not a ton of gimmicks. It's just about the music. And my theory with those is it's like if all I ever did was instructional stuff, if all I ever did was talk about life and music, why are you buying into what I have to say if I can't pick up my guitar and 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 show you here are these things that I've worked on in practice? If you these things that I, I'm trying to, to share with you and trying to teach you, here's how I've used them. And if you don't like them, that's fine, but I hope that most people can can appreciate and say, okay, he's there is some credibility there. Yeah, which is, is funny because the way that you started out, like most people have no no clue. So I think we, we got to dig into some of those stories because they're good. And I don't even know. But you, um, when you started out, you didn't start out, like a lot of people start out, they start a YouTube channel now, um, maybe in 20, we'll call it 2015, 2016 for sure. Vlogging became this like super super popular and mainstream thing where everyone was just like well i'm gonna start a youtube channel and they don't even know what they're doing you never did that you just recorded some gimmicky videos 
if you want to, like, you'll be the first to call it totally. that. No, because uh, you've think, said it to me I before. I don't think gimmick is a bad word in my books. No. A good gimmick is something that's pretty pretty tough to come up with. But that's how you got out there, right? That's how you got your start, was you're doing these gimmicky videos, and now you do exactly zero. We'll call it zero. You still do, like, interesting things, but they're not gimmicky. They're, it's just good quality content. And I think everyone's going to have, um, like, you're doing fewer covers, um, you're doing some original stuff, but it's more like you're doing the vlog stuff and then some technical music related, um, like educational stuff. And it's all over the map in a good way where it, n- nobody's getting bored saying like, oh, here's another scale video. Oh, here's another music history video. If that was like week after week for eight weeks straight, people would get bored of it. So it's like you intersperse all these interesting things. And it's I know that's what keeps me watching is that I'm just like, yeah. what's up next yeah what's up next and i loved like i loved hearing i know you, you just dropped it i haven't had a chance to watch it but you're, you're the second in that series of you listening to old music and reacting to it it's just it's interesting because it's insightful and it is like genuine you're you're talking about it from the heart and you're not afraid to call a spade a spade yeah i mean i think there's reasons why this evolution has happened the way it it, it has and i don't know if it's overly interesting to dive into the all the elements of it, but a big part of it was doing YouTube full time as a job meant I had to get regular content out there. If you look at how many videos I produced in my first year of doing it, like basically putting all my creative time and effort into YouTube, I think I put out maybe seven videos, eight videos in a year, in a year, because I would finish one of these big covers and these covers that I was doing things like playing, uh, however many eight, nine instruments at the same time, it took a lot of preparation to do that. Some of the, I would do these crazy video game covers and I still like to do those now and then, but they, I was spent, I remember spending a month on one once putting like eight hour days in every single day. And it took me a month to make this thing. And it was like, if I want to do this full time, I got to be getting things out every week because that's one of the things that the algorithm likes. It likes consistency. Um, and not just the algorithm, but your fan base. You want to keep them engaged and you want to keep them talking about you and you want to be growing every single week and you have to maintain that level of consistency. And when I was just doing it at first and didn't have that consistency at all, it was just like, okay, well, I can pour a month into this video and then I can do the same thing and then the next one comes out whenever it comes out. Now I do two a month, or sorry, two a week and there's just no way that I can only be doing some of these crazy concepts. And some of these crazy concepts it was also a little bit draining to do them because when I first started doing the YouTube thing, I had no built-in fan base. Like right now I'm at 150,000 subscribers, which is by no means huge in the spectrum of, of YouTube, but it basically guarantees that I'm going to get enough views for me to be happy to see, to think that I put enough or I'm going to see my, my times returned. Uh, but when I first was getting started and I had a hundred people following me, a thousand people following me, it would be pretty draining to make a video that I poured my heart and soul into for a long period of time and no one really cared about it. And so I was like, I need to figure out a way for my emotional state to be able to put something out regularly so that I know if one of these videos doesn't take off, doesn't get traction around the internet, then at least I know next week I got something else coming out. And if that wasn't doesn't work, I got something else next week. Yeah, and that's kind of the interesting thing too is that you start to realize that one person might love the video game cover 
and it's the best thing they've ever seen. And another person might hate it and not watch it, not want to engage with it, right? And so the only way to mitigate that is to just keep putting out different and diverse content so that it doesn't matter if the video game person loved it or hated it, right? Or whoever watched it. It's that next week there's something different that maybe both people like or the opposite happens, right? And that's kind of what you did. And that's, I think that's the important thing is that sometimes people think, oh, I got to put out content for the sake of it now because I know that in order to get consistency, I just have to turn on the camera and go. Yeah, maybe not a bad strategy, but they don't plan it out as well. And I think that's interesting what you're doing is that you figured out a way to lower the barrier to um, getting that content out for yourself, but it's still super super well produced and super well thought out. It's not just like, oh, this looks like an afterthought of a video mm-hmm. where he stumbles over his words for five minutes and that's his, his weekly vlog. Nothing wrong with that, but it's like you're, all your videos ha- are, are, are great and consistent as far as quality goes. I think one of the things that has been the guiding force like since day one is I always wanted to be sure that I was enjoying everything I did. And if... If I wasn't, then it meant that I was doing something wrong. And so everything that I do, I try to make sure that I'm proud of this video. I'm excited about making this video. And if that, that's led me to where I am now, and if I can just trust that, trust that feeling that says, okay, I'm having fun right now, then other people are going are gonna to like it. And, then I, and because of that, I've kind of stopped caring what people say to a certain degree. I st- I've stopped reading the comments for the most part. I'll read them for the first day they come out and then I'll, I'll stop reading uh, because I, I find that the negativity can start to get to you and I don't want to have that sway this intuition that's guided me to where I am now. Yeah, and you'll always be in a position once you're you're past um, a critical mass, right? Like you're, you're past a certain threshold. It's inevitable that you're going to get trolled on any platform. Like, it's just the reality. There are people who do that. That's their job. Yeah, and there's nothing you can do that everyone will like. It's impossible. It's, I've tried it, and if you start trying to think that you're going to do that, you're going to come up short. It's a, it, if you do that, if you are only getting positive feedback, I say you're not reaching a big enough audience. And for me, those, those negative comments always stand out a little bit more. So I figured, <clears throat> at least for now, I'm just going to avoid it all. Because my natural instinct... And the thing that I want to do when I see a negative comment is I want to respond. I want to prove this person wrong. And I want to, I want to have an interaction with them where I come out on top. And I've realized that there's nothing good that comes out of that. There's nothing productive or helpful that comes out of those things. So I'm just going to not put myself in that situation. For the first couple hours, I'm going to read the comments to make sure there's nothing horrible that I've done or any major mistake that I need to, to fix. And I'll try to respond <clears throat> Excuse me to to some comments at first, but uh, at the end of the day, I just gotta kind of focus on making sure that I'm enjoying what I do. And the other day, I was gearing up to do a video. I was gearing up to do a, another big video game cover, and I was thinking about it and I was planning it out. And I was like, I am not excited at all about doing this. This doesn't sound like fun to me. And because of that, I thought, you know what? This would probably be well received. But I need to always make sure that I'm listening to that thing because I'm going to burn myself out if I start doing things that I don't enjoy. And fortunately, everything I do, I really like it. And I think the balance keeps me interested. Uh, And I do a lot of videos where it's 
talking about life in music, the vlogs, and then talking about instructional aspects of music, and then funnier stuff, uh, and then covers, and then more serious covers, gimmicky covers, and just being able to always know that, okay, today I'm working on something a little bit different. That's, to me, what keeps it exciting. Do you have a strategy? Like, I know you've got um, a manager. Like, once you hit a certain point on YouTube, I'm sure managers start reaching out to you, and everybody wants to represent you or... Like, especially if you get into the hundreds of thousands or millions of subscribers, like it's, you need somebody to manage all yeah. your inbound inquiries, right? Yeah, I do. Uh, not all the inbound inquiries, they all come through me first. Like all the, the website that I have listed that says, if you want to contact me, reach out to this one, that goes to my, I read those. It's to the point where I can't possibly respond to everyone. But if it's something that I think, okay, this seems worthwhile pursuing i'm going to send it to them to my manager and then she's on the case i don't do any of the business discussions which i hate doing and i'm thrilled that i don't have to do that anymore like the negotiations and stuff like that yeah if somebody wants to work with me uh i will send them right to to my manager essa and she crushes it and i just trust that she's got my my best interest at heart and i i've had i've known her for a while now before she became my manager and yeah, it's, it's going well. I like her. So do you have like a do you have like a roadmap? Like let's take it to the business side of things for a sec, right? So maybe not planned out with your manager and maybe it's a mental map or maybe it's actually like written out on the back of a napkin, but do you have kind of like a strategy or like a map of like I know in the next like month I'm doing these videos or in the next like six months I'm doing these and I want to get to this subscriber base? Are you like, are you um, quick and nimble where you, you plan almost like every like week or two weeks out on what you're doing? I'm usually, as far as the videos go, I'm usually, I have a rough idea of what I want to do. One of the things I like to do is space them out. So if I do a, an instructional video, I don't want to do an instructional video next. So do you keep, is that like written in a notebook or is that just, or on a Google doc or something, or is that literally in your head? No, I just go, I just go and I'll look, okay, how long has it been since I did a vlog? Oh, it's been a while. That means I can crush one out. And there's certain videos that take way less time. And when, uh, when I feel like it's, it's not diluting that type of video, then I'll just kind of do it to save myself some time. Um, but I, I've had different types of roadmaps and, and ideas, and maybe it's worthwhile looking at like where this thing came from because at the beginning I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do, but it didn't exactly turn out how I planned it. Uh, and I guess it's probably even worthwhile going like way back yeah, to rewind. when I first, yeah, let's rewind going the way back machine. We're going back to, I guess my first, the, the YouTube thing started clicking with me when I had a friend um, and he was one of my closest musical uh Closest musical associates, I guess, if you want to call him that, but even more so, he was just like my best friend at school. He was my my musical peer, my closest musical peer. The first day I got to school in Toronto to study music in my postgraduate, I met this guy, and him and I hit it off, and we were talking about business, and we were talking about music, and we ended up being roommates, and we played in a ton of bands together, and yeah, my closest musical ally at the time, or whatever you want to call it, but also just like my, my best friend out there. And then... He joined a band 
And that band had a massively huge viral sensation with them playing five guitars. Or no, sorry, them playing one guitar with five people. And that band's called Walk Off the Earth. And anybody listening to this, if you don't know them, you need to check them out. They're one of the most talented and innovative groups out there. But I saw that happen. And here's this guy. And him and I were just very much on par as far as our musical skills go, as where, as far as our experiences, as far as like even our, like our, our schooling. We were in the same classes. We played in the same bands. But then he had this monumental success. And he was suddenly, he went from playing the YMCA to nobody. And the YMCA, I mean the actual, the place, not the song. Like playing at the, at the Burlington YMCA to no one, to being on Ellen DeGeneres and being signed by Sony. Uh, or I guess it was Columbia, and being on the same label as as John Mayer, and having people like like uh, I think Clay, Clive Davis reaching out to them, like these types of people tweeting at them and saying these things, and suddenly I saw this thing that ever since I picked up guitar, I wanted that. I wanted to have that success, and I wasn't having it. I had no success at that point. I was just a guy practicing guitar and trying to get better at it, and I saw them overnight go from being a, a, a band that had very few subscribers to being a viral sensation. Now, it didn't happen overnight. They were preparing for this and they were working hard on this, but it, that, that, that turn happened overnight. And You're so seeing me, they were working like, on that video? Like that video no, on, for a on while? YouTube stuff. They were putting out YouTube videos and they were, they were trying to get a viral hit for a while. Uh, and so it wasn't like they just started the band and then they made a video and then the next day they were famous. They, the band had been together for years before, played countless gigs, had serious ups and downs. But they grew, they grew their, the biggest part of their fan base overnight, essentially. And, and then kept is, on growing from there. This is your roomie, so you watched the progression. Like you, yeah, he you, wasn't my roommate at the time, but he had been my roommate, and he was still a very close friend. And I remember as soon as this video was blowing up, he's like, he texts me, um, and I, maybe it was at night, I remember lying in bed, and he's like, I'm on the front page of Reddit which is a conglomerate of a lot of... It's a place where they call it the front page of the of the internet. And I, I thought to myself, oh, he posted something and it's gone to the front page? And no, I, I opened it up and there was his band there. And that was the thing that, that led to... You can trace most of their success back to that one moment. And so that laid the seed in my head that the power of YouTube was there and I was so driven to get it because part of me was super thrilled for, for my friend Joel, but part of me was also just extremely jealous of this. This is what I wanted. And... He, he was getting it and he was receiving it and I wasn't even getting a taste of that. And so that was something that motivated me. I was like, I want, I want this. And, then, and here's a guy where very much musical peers and equals, if he can do this with his group, I can do this in some way. And it would still be years before I, I even launched a YouTube vid, uh, channel. But because of that video where five people were playing one guitar, they were on a bunch of... Uh, of TV shows and news news stations. And I remember this one news anchor, she said, wow, that's really cool. But I'd like to see one person play five guitars. And that put the seed in my head where I was like, okay, well, why couldn't one person play five guitars? And so that year I shot a video of me playing for Elise by Beethoven on five different guitars at the same time. I had nowhere to release it to. So I just put it on my hard drive and, and kind of thought, okay, one day I'll have something where I can share this with an audience. So fast forward a couple of years, I graduate school and I've, I'm starting to think really seriously about how am I really going to make money in this industry? How am I going to fulfill the goals that I have for myself? How am I not going to have to teach guitar to seven and eight year olds to just pay my bills? 
And so my idea was, I'm going to write country music down in Nashville. I'm going to write hits that are on the radio. The reason why I thought that was because I realized a lot of the stuff you hear on the radio isn't that far away from the rock music that I grew up with. And so I thought to myself, okay, well, how am I going to get down there? Because I'm a Canadian, I can't just move down to Nashville, get myself a green card. Doesn't quite work like that. I have to establish myself in this industry. I want to get to the point where if I do eventually move down there, people know who I am. I have uh, enough clout to get me in door so I'm that I'm not just grinding it up from the bottom to the top. And so my idea was I'm going to start a country music band up here in Canada and we're going to rise to the top of Canadian country music and and through that, people will have to take me seriously when I when I go down there. And I'll, I'll open up enough doors and have enough connections through that to, to, to be able to move to that part of writing later on in my career once our band has passed its peak or whatever. And, and you still have that naive approach, right? Like you think that that's, never mind, like a viable option. You think it's realistic. You're like, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to do it. I'll start the country band. We'll make it in Canada. I'll get some recognition and then I'll go to Nashville and Bob's your uncle, right? Like it's yeah, just well, like so naive, you know? So part of, so one of the things that I, I've recognized, a trait that I've recognized within myself since I've been young is I just believe I can do anything. And I Which think, is amazing. I, and I, I think that's, I mean, I can trace it back to things that my dad taught me, but I just truly believe, and even if I know deep down that is just utter nonsense, part of me believes I can do anything. Part of me believes that right now at age almost 30, that if I really wanted to, I could go play in the NHL. I know, objectively speaking, that is nonsense. That will never happen. I'm not even close to making that happen. But there is part of me that just says, well, if you put your mind to it, you could do it. And so that aspect of, of, of saying, okay, I'm going to get, make this country band and we're going, to be, we're going to make it big. That is where that comes from. And a lot of the time, I think that's a, a pretty, that's a good thing to have as long as you're able to to move on when the things that you expect yourself to happen don't happen. Yeah, man. I mean, that lays the foundation. That is the foundation that allows you to build a house upon it. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I still believe to this day that if, if I had the right tools and the right people, I could have, or we could have done that. I, I really think it would have worked because my idea was with this band, we're going to, create a big fan base and how are we going to do it we're going to use the walk off the earth approach we're going to create these crazy uh youtube videos that people will be so fascinated by with that they're just going to share them and i had a list of all these videos that i was going to do uh and then when that band didn't work out for one reason or another uh i realized like a lot of what i needed to get out of people to make this vision happen was more than i could possibly ask of anyone i was single i had no job really no priorities and i was just committed to making this band happen no matter what and very few people are lucky to enough to be in that situation where they don't really have to worry about paying their bills because their parents are helping them out uh and you don't really have to worry about a family or 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 your girlfriend or whatever i was dead set on this one thing i was single i had a single track focus with that and to expect that of of a lead singer because i'm not a singer myself it's it's really hard to get what you need, especially in those early stages when money is not coming in. It's almost impossible to ask out of someone. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to start looking in some, into making some of these videos myself, and I'm just going to post them on Instagram. And at the time, Instagram had fifteen second a 15-second limit. And you can see it 
even right now, like my, all those videos are still up there. You can see me just posting a couple things on Instagram. You can see that the number of likes on them slowly gets more and more and more. And then you can see that now I'm at some point I decided to, okay, I'm going to try to execute some of these ideas that I have. This idea where I'm going to play a pop song or I'm going to play a song entirely using iPad apps. And then eventually before long, people on my Instagram were saying, hey, where can I find the full versions of these? What's your YouTube page? And I was like, okay, well, I don't have one, so I better get on that. And at the time that I started my YouTube page, I had a pretty clear idea of what the possibilities were with it. I had a pretty idea, good idea that what I was doing was viable because it had already proven itself on Instagram. And I knew that, okay, I have a couple videos that I can, I can uh, make full versions of, and I know that they're going to be, re- be received well. And because of that, like right out of the, the gate, I feel like I was making pretty decent content, not compared to like what I'm doing now. And it, it definitely grew. But I, I didn't have that same growth period that a lot of people have when they have to figure out, okay, how do I how do I record music? I was already well beyond that. How do I make videos? I was already well beyond that. So I, I think because of that, that's why I had success fairly early on. Like my third video I ever released got maybe two hundred thousand views. Yeah, uh, and that that's because they were they were from a creative standpoint, they were good covers like they're recognizable songs but they were gimmicky if you want to use that word right where people are like whoa um don't fear the reaper played on ipads yeah right and so there's a lot of planning that also goes into that because i'm thinking okay what song is going to work on on here what song is going to be something that i like but also will make people I guess, engage or laugh at it or, or whatever. And I was like, okay, don't fear the reaper stands out. Cause I can just get that cowbell and everyone's going to be referencing that cowbell when they watch that video. And then, and when they share that video and I'm going to make some sort of gimmick with the cowbell. And so, uh, yeah, that early on having that success, I think was huge. Cause that was just reaffirmation to like, yeah, I'm onto something here. It was Within, like your, Instagram was your prototype. And, uh, and then YouTube, the fact that within, uh, I guess that, I think that happened in December and I started my, uh, YouTube page on October 10th and seeing that happen so quickly. And within, when that happened, I, I did like a round of the, the Winnipeg news, um, outlets. They wanted to, to talk to me and do some, some pieces on me. And just like, it was just, it just made me believe. And I think it was the thing that made, uh, I guess even like at this point I was living with my parents and they're like, okay, well he he's onto something. We're going to put up with these shenanigans for a little bit longer. And then it just, it grew from there, but I had to change things along the way, especially because when I first started, I had a huge list of, of these crazy videos that I was ready to do. I went, I made my way through all of those. There's like two more that I still want to do, but I ran out of those ideas pretty quickly. And so I was like, okay, what can I do that also will interest people that can, that can take some of the, the 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 pressure off having to come up with something insane every single time I do this. Yeah, and I'm sure you could come up with a million more of those if you sat down and really thought about it. But it's it's almost like you you have to uh, abort those projects to focus on others just because of all the time and effort that it takes to produce something. Like it's not viable to be in the position you're in and put out seven or eight videos in a year anymore. Yeah. Like people Especially would, since like, like I had one, it took me a year to shoot and it got, uh, it's probably got 15,000 views. Doing that is not conducive to, uh, to making a living. 
Yeah, and now you're getting 15,000 within the first 12 hours of a day, easily, yeah. with a good video. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, and the other thing I started to realize was, I think in order to, to build a fan base, and and I think to make a living in the music industry, you have to build a fan base, and then you monetize that fan base. And I think to some people, that might just sound like robotic, that I'm just treating people like like numbers and, and bank accounts or... or, or a means to an end. But I think really that's, if you look at it, that's how you, you, you make money in this industry and you can respect that relationship and you can be very, very grateful to your fans. But essentially that's how you, that's how you survive. Correct. But you're, and, you're and, providing value. You're providing yes, full value yeah. at, and it's free content and people don't have a problem supporting or paying for, um, aspects of things now and again right like you figure out ways to if you want to call it monetize it's not they don't ever feel like they're being taken because you're providing them with so much value that uh they're willing to spend money on entertainment somewhere so it's just a form of entertainment to them yeah and i think you just you always just have to be respectful of that relationship you can acknowledge it and understand what this what what the arrangement is but you have to respect people not just try to take their money for the sake of taking their money you have to feel like i'm giving you something in return for what you're giving me yeah it's it's a two-way social contract it absolutely is people understand it and you understand it and it's just like yeah i know that's the market norm yeah and if you don't think of it that way and if you don't try to see the this thing as a business you're not going to get to the point where where you can survive and so one of the things i realized was that just doing these crazy covers, it didn't get people invested in me as a person. And I think that's when, when people like you, they like your art, but they also are invested in you. They're more likely to, to watch more of your videos. They're more likely to put money towards your Patreon account. They're more likely to follow you on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And so I was like, okay, I got to talk to the camera more. I got to get these people. I got to, I want to show who I am. I want them to feel like I want them to feel towards me how I feel to my favorite YouTube creators. And I, I catch myself watching uh, one of my favorites is, is H3H3 Productions or Boogie2988. And I catch myself, I have to remind myself, oh yeah, I don't know this person. This person is not my friend. This person is, is they have no idea I exist. But I feel a, a closeness with them. You feel like and you're because of that, them. Yeah, exactly. And because of that, I want to buy their, the t-shirts that they put out and stuff like that. And so I was like, I got to make sure that I have to incorporate that in my in my business somehow, just by doing crazy music covers. People don't know who I am. They they aren't invested in me. They're invested in in the the content I create. And so I started talking to the camera more and and trying to weigh in on some things that I thought people on YouTube weren't talking about. Things like like why a lot of musicians seem to be really unhappy, and why um, or who the last guitar hero was, or 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 just things like that. Just talking to the camera about things that I, I never really saw content like before and that I personally, if I, if I was 16 watching YouTube, I would have loved that kind of stuff. And so I was like, okay, well there's a little, there's a, an, a market there for these things. And then I tried to do the instructional stuff too, where I was teaching things that I've, I've learned, but I tried to do things that weren't the obvious things that everyone else has done. I'm not going to show someone how to play stairway to heaven. There's a ton of videos that show that I'd like to show people things that maybe they aren't thinking about. And because of that, like those things started to take off and then just another idea would come to me. Oh, I'm going to try doing this as a, as a series. I'm going to try doing this. And before long, people were more invested in me as a, as a personality versus just a guitarist. And I think that's when, 
I think that ties into that idea you mentioned earlier where people are are engaged because they don't just care about they're not just they're not they're not really going through the experience looking at me they're kind of going through the experience with me if that makes sense they're uh, along for the ride percent, man they're part and of the you, journey and you're very transparent about that journey like where where you're at with it and it's you've had a really interesting evolution of your brand if you want to call it that and i hate using that word too like the personal no, I, I brand like that word. but but it's you do have a brand you've got the samurai guitars brand right and people recognize maybe that's why you are also recognizable uh like easily identifiable in public because you've got a pretty specific image if you want to call it that and it, and it's it's an authentic image. It's not like it's a manufactured one. It was just like this natural progression of like the same kind of image that you would have had when you were a kid. It's just that this is like the man version of Steve. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's funny because people like our good friend, Chris Friesen loves the eyebrows, right? Like just, (laughs) but it's, it's, it's all those aspects. And I think the other part of it that's kind of neat is that, YouTube is very much a platform for a younger demo for the most part. Like you're not getting older, older people. Right. Um, Well, I mean, certain people, I don't, if you looked at my demographics, like my demographic perfectly represents me. I'm making, I'm making videos for, for me, essentially it's uh, 18 to 34 year old. Well, it's American males from California who are mostly guitar players, which is pretty representative of, of who I am as, as a person, I would say, as well. Correct. But Whereas, interesting... Like, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Like, the main demographic of people on YouTube are your younger 12 to 17-year-olds. But the interesting thing I find about your content for a vlogger, if you want to call it that, or a YouTuber, is that a lot of, like, vloggers will have content that only appeals to a younger demo or a certain demo. Whereas your content, like you're not sitting doing gimmicky videos. Um, your content is interesting when you start talking about things like, let's talk about the history of like, where did um, the top seven guitar riffs of all time or something like that, right? That as a piece of music history content, the way that you're actually positioning it um, it's not like you're trying to talk at a bro down level where you're like, Oh, I'm just trying to appeal to younger people that could be showed to somebody who's in their sixties and it would be a relevant piece of content, which I think is kind of an interesting approach you're taking because you're just trying to make good content. That's got longevity to it. Yeah. Like like I, I that just ties into, I'm just trying to do things that I like to do. I love music, music history. When I was a kid, all I ever used to read from like age 13 on your, onwards was just rock and roll biographies. And in my mind, I was like, okay, there's a reason why I'm doing this. This is going to pay off one day. And now when I, that's one, that's a big part of one of my series is I talk about like the history of rock and roll and, and music. And I, I kind of, I pull out those books and I go through them and I don't know, it's just, it's all these different aspects and I would get bored. If that's the only thing I do, I did was the, the history type videos, I would get so bored with it if all I ever did was the instructional stuff, I get so bored with it. And it's just like doing all of them makes it, keeps it interesting to me. Yeah. And, and you can pivot, right? Like it's not, it's not like you planned on like, okay, I'm going to start doing music history. It's just like you did it one day, started getting some traction. Then you did another and another. And then now it's like things like that are, are more standard in the content that you're putting out. I like being able to, and those are nice because those don't require a ton of effort. 
I can research that one in a day, write out my script in a day, shoot it the next day and have it edited three day turnaround or even a two day if I really hustle. Um, and those things are important that I can get those out quick just because I'm doing two videos every week. And it's important to be able to not have to spend a month on something. Well, exactly. And that's a lot of pressure. Yep. Where, where do you want this whole journey to go? Like you're, you're on this path where obviously up and to the right is where everyone likes to see things go, right? But like YouTube is like one aspect of you as a person. It's a, it's, it's a large part of your persona, but it's not, it's not like, oh, that defines who I am. That's like a, that's a small part of Steve as a person. But where, where do you want this journey to go? Like I know you haven't hit the mill yet on, um, on video views not collectively, I'm talking in an individual video, like are there certain goals that you've got as far as like, yeah, I want to get my subscriber base to X by a certain point or I want to get a million view video in 2018 or is it more just like an organic journey for you where you're just like, yeah, let's see what happens. I think a lot of the number things, I don't have goals with numbers anymore. I used to. My first year of YouTubing, my goal was like 10,000 subscribers and 1 million views and my second year, I was like, I want to get to, I can't remember what it was, I think 50,000. And then third year, I was like, get to 100,000. But I don't have those goals anymore because I think it's, it, you have such little control over that based on how the algorithm is. And at this point, I can't do anything more. I'm at, I'm, I'm working as hard as I can on this. And so I don't think it's healthy to be trying to think, okay, I want to get a million uh, views or a million subscribers by this time. Because if you don't, and what what was the point in doing that? What motivation does that provide you? It doesn't provide me with any. Um, I would like to get, I mean, that's that's something that's always been there is getting to a million subscribers because especially since I remember one time someone told me, someone who I worked with who was part of a, an old management team, he was like, I don't think you'll ever get to a million subscribers. He's just like, objectively, I don't, I hope you do, but I don't think you'll ever do that. I'm like, in my head, it's always been, yeah, well, I'm going to prove you wrong. And that's that's definitely that just that's a big number and getting to that means you're pretty pretty established within YouTube and being able to to continue doing this and it also like right now I'm at 150,000 if I get to a million that means all the numbers in my life usually will almost times 10 I guess the amount of money that I make through these certain things will probably increase tenfold which is significant to the point where it's like okay then I can start really preparing for knowing that I will not have to work outside of this if I don't want to. But as far as, as other things, like there are things that I really, that are missing in my life. And those are the kind of the things that kind of make up my goals now. Um, things like playing live. I don't play live very often. And I really, really want to. It's something that I really, really miss is just playing for people. But at the same time, I'm sick of playing empty rooms. I've played so many empty rooms in my life. I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm I'm trying to think to myself, okay, I don't want to go back into doing session stuff around Winnipeg because that just leads to empty rooms. I want to somehow turn Samurai Guitarist into a live entity. And one of the things I've been planning on doing and hopefully doing maybe in spring or next summer is like I want to do a Samurai Guitarist and Friends show every year, at least once a year. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But something where it's like I rent out a theater here sell tickets to as many people as I can and, and just put on two sets of music and incorporate all the stuff I've done in a live setting. And I want to go on the road and I want to do clinics uh, because I think I have a, 
a, a foot in the door as far as the instructional world goes. Like I think it wouldn't be far-fetched to think I can go guitar store to guitar store, get 50 people out and just talk about my music, play some music, answer questions, um, things like that. And eventually hopefully build that up to the point where I could do that in a small theater and then maybe even a little bit of a bigger theater. And then every summer, that's maybe something I do. Go on tour for, for three months or two months. Uh, doing my clinic stuff on the road and slowly increase the production of it. And first I'd probably start in, in Canada and then maybe I'd turn into something where I go through the U.S. and then overseas and and, and just build the, the ent- entire entity that is Samurai Guitarist in that way as well. Yeah, I mean, I think... Oh, go ahead, sorry. Sorry, you cut out there. No, I said go ahead. Yeah, I was. We were talking at the same time for a sec. Um, besides that, like I could see my life going in different ways. Like I imagine, will I really be able to sustain a YouTube channel for the next 40 years I'm in the workforce or whatever? I don't know. I don't, I I mean, it could be something where I'm right now only seeing the beginning of the successes I will see. I could be the next generation of, of guitar heroes. The, the, the guy that in, in 10 years, all these young guitar players, they grew up watching my videos and to them, I'm, I am to them what Slash is to me. I don't, I don't know if that'll it'll go that way. If things keep growing how I hope they would, it will. But that's that's a very that's unforeseen. That's one of those X factors that I don't dwell on too much. And so I think, okay, well, if that doesn't happen, what direction can my life go? I think I could transition based on what I've done so far um, into a life in the, the business side of music based on the fact that I can, through YouTube and through what I've done, get in the door and say, okay, listen, Listen, Sony, you need someone like me on your staff because I understand the climate more than anybody you have on there right now. Nobody in your staff has grown a YouTube page from from zero to 150,000 subscribers or whatever. I, I think those kind of being able to do that and be on the, the kind of the cutting edge of what this music industry is, I think that can get me into those types of situations if I so desire it. Um, or even like move into a role where one day I, I go and back to the college that I, I studied at as a teacher and I teach uh, a music business course or uh, the online the online musician course or something like that. So I, I think I don't really have a necessarily a clear-cut path. It's more like, okay, there are options that don't lead me to, uh, to poverty and, <laughs> and homelessness if this thing doesn't totally work out. Well, I mean, in 2017, man, you're in the right place as far as attention goes right? Like you are in the place where consumer's attention is. It lies within digital platforms, specifically for video content, Facebook and YouTube, right? YouTube, as far as having like a collection, Facebook, as far as like tons of views and, and shareability goes like different platforms for different execution and types of videos, right? Like your videos, uh, your vlogs, are not Facebook content doesn't mean they can't go up there, but your, your video game and whatever gimmicky covers are perfect Facebook videos. Right. And so it's just a matter of like, you're in the right place where the attention is, but I can see where you're coming from as far as missing out on there's this human element, right? So if you work in isolation, you work from home, let's say not you personally, but a person works from home and they don't really see coworkers or they don't get to engage with people on a personal level as often as they used to. 
you kind of miss that in a way. As much as you like having the autonomy of working from home, you, you can miss that, right? And so with music or anything that's entertainment-based, there's an element of social interaction where you kind of want, um, not from an ego standpoint, but you want that immediate feedback or gratification of saying, like, you want to hear the, the applause and you want to hear the Yeah, you want to hear that. You want to feel that. You want to feel, feel that both. feeling when you step on stage. You, you want to feel the, the gratitude and you want to feel the pain of, ha- of, of bombing, right? Like, you want to feel both. Not that you ever want to go up and bomb, but it, it's hard you to get know the that nerves. That it's hard to get the nerves when you're recording a video and then when you're waiting for comments to come in. It's not as, as – uh, it's not the same type of engagement as somebody physically clapping and you get that visceral sense when you just like you're playing a note and you hear somebody cheer. You'll never get oh, that totally. through doing a video. Like it's impossible because that's just not it's not going to happen that way, right? Um, you can't like because it's just numbers. That's what that's what it, that's what it looks like to me. Um, well, here's what I mean by that. Like when I was playing with one of the bands or the country band that we were trying to really pursue. We played a show here to 200 people and it was amazing. One of my be- one of the best nights I've ever had and it just felt so cool to have all these people in the audience cheering me on. When I get a video that gets seen by 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 people, I don't feel that same feeling in the least bit. It just it's just a number that's going up on the screen. And there, uh, there are a couple times where I've been able to see the human aspect behind there, but it's really, really hard for, for me to, to conceptualize. There are 100,000 people watching this video when all I see is a number because you don't feel that energy from them. You just see a number go up. And it's hard to remember. That number represents a person. Each one of those numbers represents a person like me. And the one time that I really kind of did get that feeling was I did a contest where I got people to play one of the songs that I had written. Uh, and they had a chance to win a guitar. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so when the entries started coming in, I saw 100 entries, 200 entries. And I think it ended up being like 400 and I want to say 26. And just going through each one of these, I went through every single one and listened to them. And then I saw it. This is the person. This person is playing a song that I wrote from where I'm sitting right now. This person is in China. And this person is in, is in South Africa. And this person is in the US. And that's when it started to that's when I saw that human aspect that kind of is missing when I do YouTube, but it's just so present when you play live. And that's, I want more of that, I guess, is what, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, and, and I, I guess that's a long-term goal is to be able to make, is to do more stuff like that. And I think part of it is going and playing live and meeting more people. Yeah. And that, that video, that song, Psybeam, we got to pitch it cause it's one of my faves. It's a great one, but, uh, which I actually, I, I used it in, podcast yes. it hasn't dropped awesome. yet it's gonna drop i'm actually so drop it that. drop it tomorrow so um but it, i think the the cool thing about that is that you got to see all these people put their own creative spin on what you'd done right and they were not only were they doing it musically but from a cinematography standpoint it's almost like they were trying to i don't want to say impress you that was that's not what i mean but they were trying to get your attention or they were just trying their best to to say like hey samurai guitarist this is for you or like they had all these different backgrounds and um some videos were bedroom videos like the typical guitar youtube video of somebody who's got 47 subscribers and then there were other ones that were highly produced like almost like a music video like i remember there's one guy i can't remember where he's from but he's like walking singing 
or yep. like, I, know I, I can't remember. About. You know, I can't remember exactly. I just remember there was that guy who's in like a pink T-shirt or something. But yeah, I know um, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, the pink guitar. Pink guitar. You know, and and you're you're like, this is all from that one song that I had put up and asked people to like. You you never know the way people are going to react. You think they're just going to record, put a video up, and we'll see what it turns out like. But you realize that all these people with these different experiences and different backgrounds. Um, have different takes on what you've done and different um, creative input or ways of spinning it. And you're just like, it almost blows your mind that you're just like, I didn't, I didn't expect this, but I didn't know what I'd expect in the anyway, you know? That's exactly, that totally captures it. Like I was, yeah, that, I mean, that was one of the, the, the coolest moments for me is, is listening back to those submissions and being like, these people care enough about this thing. They care enough about me and my contest and my songs to, to, to try to, to make my song into into their own and record it, and I was like, "That's who who would I do that for? If one of my favorite guitar players did that, then I I would do that. But there's a lot of guitar players I wouldn't care enough about to do that. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, they must think they must really like my music. They must care enough about my my music to see me as someone that you know they look up to as a, as a musician. And with that realization and and seeing that. It's different seeing somebody talk to a camera, and there are a lot of people who have a little message at the beginning of the video. They're like, man, I love your video so much. Uh, I hope you enjoy my take on your song. And just like seeing someone say that is so different than reading it. And I think with that relationship, it's like that, I, I always wanted that all my life. I just wanted to be a guitar player who had that, uh, that fan base and people who like my music enough to do that. And it also made me realize like there's, there's a responsibility that does come with being in that position because I think I could, I could lead people very much the wrong way if I wanted to uh, just for views and just for money. I could say things that I don't believe in. I could sell people things that I don't care about. I could, I can make videos pitching things and, and putting up Amazon links that I think are garbage. I could um, do sponsor videos with things that I don't think are, are good. And it's like, you know what? when you're in a position where you do have influence over people, you do need to be aware of, of that relationship and you do need to be conscious of what you're doing and, and who you are as a person, I think is, is what the deeper thing is. You need to be comfortable with yourself and aware of what influence you want to have on the world. Because if you get that position and you aren't sure of that, I think some negative things can come of that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a sense of responsibility as you have a, a a broader and a deeper reach, right? Like you get deeper within existing communities, but broader across communities that had no idea who you were before, and you're just starting to get some traction there. Um, yeah. There's there's a huge sense of responsibility because you don't ever want to steer people in a direction that either a you don't believe or b could be a uh, I use it lightly, a dangerous path, right? Like it's not that you ever be exposing them to anything quote unquote dangerous, but dangerous in the sense of um, misconstruing facts or uh, getting them to buy something that you didn't believe in or they didn't need or, or, or like we can skin the cat a thousand ways here. But um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a sense of responsibility where you almost have to be introspective about, every not necessarily every word you're saying but um every single thing that you're you are communicating um 
to make sure that that influence isn't coming across with a biased lens, you know? Yeah, because I, I do think that people, there are people there out there uh, who watch my videos and do do look up to what I do in, in some way or another. Um, and I think, I I think it's important for, in my mind, I want to set a good example. I want to, I, I feel like I don't want to tell people what to do, but I want to say, okay, here's how I deal with these things. Here's how I go into the world and try to be the best person that I, I can, I can be um, without going too overboard with anything. But th- this is how I try to, to live my life. And, and if you like my videos, maybe you'll, you'll find some sort of direction or guidance in that. And I think you can find YouTubers who have huge, huge fan bases. Take PewDiePie, for example, for who a couple days ago said some really horrible stuff on live stream. Not, not stuff. He said one word that you should not say. And when, as soon as you say that word, the people who look, look up to you, they think, oh, well, if he can say that word, maybe I can. It's cool if PewDiePie does it. It's cool if I do. Whether it, it carries, whether it's as bad as, as everyone makes it out to be or whatever, that's besides the point. I am always aware that when I present myself and I, I say stuff online that I hope that if somebody deci- were to decide to, to take some guidance or from me that it's going to put them in a good place I would hope or at least better off or wouldn't, wouldn't make things worse as well. and I, I guess I guess I guess I'm just saying I tried to be as aware of that as I possibly could yeah and the thing is slipping up over your words right so just slipping up and and stumbling on your words that's not a big deal that's just that's just an aspect of being a human being right it's, yeah. it's well, natural but when you start to do things like you say um, things that are inappropriate uh, or try to steer people to think a certain way, right? So let's say that you're you're using um, derogatory commentary. You're being prejudiced or racist or yeah, exactly. whatever it might be. All of a sudden, everything you've ever done, luckily people forget about stuff as easily as they pick it up in this day and age, but everything that you've ever done is automatically discounted and it's just like oh oh well his stuff isn't i don't take it as credible or trustworthy anymore or her stuff right doesn't matter who it is but you look at that and you're just like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna trust the source as much anymore because i don't like the way that this person's approaching what they're approaching yeah totally and I think I try to, I think you have to be aware of that musically as well. Like with the videos I produce, I have put out like some of the original stuff I've put out have, I've gotten comments of people saying stuff like, wow, I used to love your instructional stuff, but I listen to your music. It's, I hate your music. And now I take none of your stuff for, as, as, uh, as having any weight anymore. Which is absurd. That's just a troll thing. It is absurd. The, the but thing- I, I think the, I think they, I think the people who say that they truly buy into that but at the same time like one of the things that i try to make very clear is when i do instructional stuff i'm like listen i may incorporate this one way these are overarching terms this is not specific stuff but you do need to be aware that people view you differently or could view you differently if you based on what content you put out correct i mean the thing about you though is that that you're lucky that you can lucky it's there's no sense of luck you um, you're fortunate that you've put in the time, right? You've put in an immense amount of time to become great at tons and tons of different styles. So when it comes down to it, like I know you majored in jazz, which is the equivalent of having a philosophy degree. 
in kind music, of. basically. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't. I studied a lot of jazz, but I wouldn't say I, that wasn't the major. It was a contemporary music degree, and a, there was a large element of jazz. In it. You, you dove deep into jazz, but when it comes to styles, you can crush basically any style and it's not just like oh he can play it pretty well it's like every style within like we'll call it a 90 to 95 percent range you can crush so then it's like oh he walks walk and talks a talk the only things that it's like you haven't spent as much time doing is things like some metal stuff which instead of just trying to hide it come out yeah you come out and you, you say like, hey, I haven't done this, so I'm going to learn it in front of you. And you do a video around it. And then it builds that respect even further because like, ah, oh, guy knows that he's like, that guy knows he's willing to be honest and be like, yeah, I suck at this. Right? It's not that was a big thing great. to with the last video that I did, the, the reacting to my old music. I was like, everyone's got these things out there that they're so embarrassed of. They're, and that's what those recordings, a lot of those recordings were to me, not all of them. But especially the ones where I was singing, I was like, I don't want the world to see this for the longest period of time. I was like, I'd be so embarrassed if anyone ever heard this. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to embrace that. At the end of the day, I'm very happy with where I've uh, gotten as a musician, and, and that doesn't sh- that there's nothing that that those uh, recordings can take away from what I can do now. On the uh, and the other benefit is the fact that people who are in a place when they're like. I, I'm just getting started or I'm at this part of my journey. They can listen to those recordings that were pretty rough by me and they can say, hey, he, this guy was there. He's not some superhuman who was born with the ability to play guitar. No, he struggled like the rest of us. And so I was like, oh, that could be a, a cool example. Yeah, it, g- it gives people confidence that it's okay to to suck and to show the world that you're getting better and working hard at it. And I, like, dude, I'll be totally honest with you. I've fully appropriated your your line about um, the story of Chris Friesen, right? And just kind of about the, this whole character podcast thing. I use it all the time because I just love it so much. How, Which line is that? You talk about the warts and the wrinkles of stories. When you're willing to just share the warts and the wrinkles and, and life isn't about this manufactured persona, Right? Where it's like things. I said this. I don't remember saying this. I remember you saying this. Maybe I said, I don't know. I'm going to, I, I always attribute it to you. So maybe I did. Yeah, dude, I attribute it to you. Uh, I appreciate it. You can I'll have take it. The credit. You can, you can take it. Maybe I did say it. I'll have to rewind, go back and do some deep listening here. But uh, no, man, I think we were talking about it and, and somebody had mentioned uh, about warts and wrinkles and I, I that's exactly it you're showing with your music you're showing the warts and wrinkles and all these ugly things of you building your journey to where you are now but i think that's like that's what's so cool about youtube and the nature of the industry now now we get to it, it's not about this fine beautiful polished product anymore that's what it used to be about it used to be about these these musicians who went through the the ringer and became there was an identity with them that had been partially crafted by the label or, or society or whatever. But now it's just like, I get to do whatever I want and I want, and I think the thing that draws people to, to musicians is the fact that, uh, or sorry, not musicians to, to people on YouTube is the fact that they see that this guy is just a guy. He's in front of his camera, just, just doing something that, that, that they could do. Whereas before I would watch YouTube video or um, I would watch music videos and I'm like, okay, I'm watching all the small things by Blink-182. I can't do that unless I 
get a ton of money somehow. And I think that's one of the cool things about YouTube is any kid can watch anything that I do. And I would hope that they could say to themselves, oh yeah, if I practiced and figured out this software and worked hard enough, I can get that. I have a zero dollar budget basically for every video I do. And I think that's what makes it identifiable to some people. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, we can call it, we can call it as we want now, right? Like we're having this conversation. I'm enjoying it. I hope you're enjoying it. Right. I sure enjoy it. Right. But there'll be people that are going to listen to this as we're saying it right now. Right. And they're just not going to enjoy, I guess, if they got to this point, they hopefully they'll enjoy it. But people just might get to the end of this and be like, oh man, I didn't enjoy that. Well, you know what? Not everyone's going to enjoy every single episode. And then there will be other people who are like, oh, I enjoyed that immensely. I'm very interested in YouTube. Um, I've never really heard the story of a YouTuber from an inside scoop. And there's just all these different ways of looking at it. So it's like you can never produce. Like you, you said before, you can never produce content that everybody's always going to like. But you put it out there. And as long as it's meaningful to you in some way or another um, – and one person likes it, then it's like your job is done there, right? It's not, you're putting out content that isn't offensive. You're putting out content that is trying to be beneficial in some way or another and create value for people. And that's, it's an honorable thing to do that. Yeah. I think it's like I said before, you just got to do, you can't try to be anyone else on, in this world, in this entertainment world, because there's been, there's been so much of that in the past. And I think what has value now is realness. What has value now is when you can can be invested in someone, not because of, of all the things that are going on behind the scenes, but because of you like that person as a person. And I think the best example of that is a YouTuber, Boogie2988. And he's just like, he's a super overweight guy. He just had bariatric surgery. Morbidly obese fellow. I think he was up to like 500 some pounds at, at his most. And his videos are just him talking to a webcam about life. And if that guy, if you get hooked into him because he's just a great personality and he just comes across as a a real likable person who's had real struggles. And that's why he's he's doing well is because he's just, you're invested in his personality. He's real. And I think realism has a ton of value now. It's not about being fake and trying to be something amazing, even though I think people will twist social media to, to do that. I've kind of tried to take a step back and, and make sure there's an element of, of realism and, and, and that. And how many subscribers would he have? Um, I haven't checked for a while. I'm guessing he's at 4 million. Jeez, 4 million. Yeah, so I would he, guess. He is, he, he's, a, he's a serious YouTuber. Like, he's legit, dude. Yeah, like he's, he's one of the, the gamers who is like pretty he's he's quite well known like once you get in my theory once you get past a million you're like you're growing beyond youtube you're just uh you're you're growing outside of the the boundaries of youtube people will know you who don't know youtube he's at 4.2 million yeah like that's dude that's heavy that's like that's a serious subscriber base and this is what i love about the world we live in because there's so many ways of saying like the world has so many shitty things about it right yeah, we can look at things through a negative lens, but why will we do that? Let's look at some positive things. So, this guy, w- drop him again. What's his name? His name's Boogie2988. B O O G I E 2988. 
So love the name, right? Because it's just so irrelevant. Like it's literally the guy's nickname. Plus he probably couldn't get just boogie exactly. at the time. So then he threw in his his pin number to his bank card or something, right? Yeah. And then that's how it all started. But this guy, from the way you're describing him, he's um, overweight. He, yeah, he's who cares about it? Like his personality for now. The world of media, the the old world, is going to judge this guy. So he walks into an interview to be uh, in Hollywood or like for Never some in a movie, million or or in a million years doesn't get any sort of or job, a, a newscaster or something automatically it doesn't matter how nice this guy is doesn't doesn't matter how great his personality is he's judged he's not he's not fit for camera or so they think so this guy takes it upon himself to start his own tv show and he's got a higher level of engagement and more subscribers he has like think about it let's use winnipeg as a benchmark and let's just say there are uh, a million people here which there aren't right this guy has a subscriber base that is four times the size of our city. You can't assume that even a newscaster in the city would be seen by all one million people, right? So it's like he's got higher level of engagement, higher subscriber base, higher reach, all this good stuff, and he's got his own TV show, which he can never get because of that. Now, Isn't that amazing? I love it. The fact that out there somewhere is is someone with zero subscribers who probably hasn't who probably has never posted anything on YouTube and they, without the help of anyone, can build something that has a massive outreach. The next Boogie2988 is out there somewhere and hasn't made a YouTube video. The next Samurai Guitarist is out there. The next PewDiePie is out there. And knowing that they don't have to go through the means where they are, someone else is saying, oh no, you're not fit for this. You're not good enough for this medium. It's going to be purely the people who watch them who are going to share their videos plus the YouTube algorithm and that's a whole other thing but somewhere out there without you don't need a record label to, to deem you fit to be a professional musician no. and I love that are you a nerd are you a nerd who likes to work out? I mean, probably. Why would nerds want to exercise any less than the average person? Maybe, like, are you a Star Wars nerd? If that's the case, there's literally no better way to work out than with kettlebells. And, like, if you're gonna do that, might as well have Star Wars kettlebells. Nothing like lifting the old Darth Vader head up. 70 pounds of pure iron, pure steel, just crushing that kettlebell. Even like a Darth Vader head, that'd be pretty sweet. How about a Death Star Slam Ball? Guess what? It exists. O-N-N-I-T.com. Check out on it. They've got these crazy kettlebells. So on it does, it's like total human optimization. They have fitness-related stuff. They have food-related stuff. They have nutraceuticals and all this great gear. And uh, they just did a, a new partnership doing these Star Wars. It's like private label kettlebells, which are pretty sweet. So if you're uh, if you're into kettlebells, if you're into lifting, if you 
like Star Wars that much, or if you're just one of those nerds that needs to have all the paraphernalia on your shelf, go check out the whole Star Wars collection. There's even this like crazy Han Solo yoga mat. It's like him trying to get out. I'm I'm not like big into Star Wars. I've seen it. I've seen like the first one. I don't even know all of them. I've seen like what's it? The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. I don't know the order. People are gonna kill me for not knowing all this stuff. But either way, yeah, man, they've got they've got all this great stuff. So go check it out. O n n i t dot com on it. The other crazy thing is, I didn't even realize, but there's this job called a lamp lighter. And street lamps, like they used to be candles, right? They were like candle sticks, and that's how towns would get lit up, gonna light the night on fire. And I think it was around like the 1400s, 1500s that there were these mandates in, in different cities where the streets had to be had to be lit they had to have lights on at night and so there's this job called a lamp lighter and it'd be a person who would go around every night and light up the different like candles on the street and i guess they'd probably blow them out in the morning or do whatever cap them do whatever they had to do to turn off those lights but the crazy thing is that in the world it's kind of a rare job but there's still people who are lamp lighters that's that's their job they go around lighting lamps and they only exist in a couple uh like there's a, a place in in england i guess they've got some heritage regulation where they've they've got these lamps that need lighting every night and then there's some other joint that, that it's another tourist location in the world but there are a couple places like this where lamp lighters still exist so pretty cool to think that that's where lights came from lamp lighters Good thing we don't need them now, though, thanks to companies like Cedar and Moss. Mid-century modern lighting, a little bit sleeker, a little bit different style and aesthetic, but go check them out, Cedar and Moss, C-E-D-A-R-A-N-D-M-O-S-S dot com. They make mid-century modern lighting, handcrafted out of Portland, and I just got mine. Took one shade out of the box, and uh, they're sweet sweet lights but haven't seen them all too many things to unbox too many things going on with this house renovation i'm doing so they will go up in time but for now make sure you go check them out show them some love and we'll see you next week thanks for all the love